Well, as many of you know, my wife is from California. The uh, official motto of uh, California is uh, like, Jake, are you still here? Is the Golden State, I think. And you know why that is? It's like this all the time. And one of the big adjustments that she has had to make, the difficulties she's faced, having graciously moved to Illinois, is the, uh, the long stretches in January and March and April when the, the, the cloud covers upon us and the sun doesn't shine for a week or two or three. And uh, it's difficult for her when the days are shortened. And she doesn't see her beloved son. And the weeks of overcast weather bear upon us. The sun barely shines. And then the the cold, drizzly rain. You know, there's even one of these disorders that they have invented, whatever. Seasonal affected depression disorder. You ever heard of that one? I'm not sure I got the... I know I got the acronym right. SAD. Seasonal Affective Depression Disorder. And just talking about without the sun, there's this gloomy countenance of just a, a weariness. That's our text this morning. It is dreary and dismal and rainy. I want to prepare you for that. Today's message will be a bit more serious probably than other messages. Not that God's Word is never serious, but... You know, we don't have, I don't have jokes planned. I don't have any lightness because there's no lightness to this text. It is a, a text of, of gloom and dismal life is really what it is. And so that's going to take on the tenor of my preaching this morning because that's the tenor of what Jesus said. Let's pick it up here in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, we find Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples coming to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I told you last week of the Sabbath day journey that Jesus took from the Temple Mount, where they were in uh, verses 1 and 2, to arrive with his disciples here at the Mount of Olives. About a 20-minute walk down the Kidron Valley, up the Kidron Valley, into the Mount of Olives. And I suspect that it was a, a time of retreat for Jesus and his disciples. The Temple Mount doesn't have trees shading over it. It is a very hot place, oftentimes. And I think Jesus was there in the heat of the sun, and Jesus was also facing the heat of the Pharisees. As he condemned them, I'm sure they didn't just nicely take that. They probably came back at him. And so a wise thing to do would have been to retreat, to find a shady spot of rest for a while, And I suspect that they probably went back to the Garden of Gethsemane. We read in John 18, verse 2, that Jesus often met in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. It would have been a place of enjoyment and rest with with nice, shady olive trees. I could just picture Jesus resting upon one of these olive trees and the, the rest of the disciples kind of scattered around the garden as well, just relaxing, thinking about the day's events. In verse 3, as the disciples thought about the days of events, they came to him privately asking him these questions. This word privately is is interesting. How is it they came to him privately? Of course, they were secluded. Garden of Gethsemane, perhaps. But in Mark chapter 13, verse 3, we read that only four disciples asked this question to Jesus. It was Peter and James, John and Andrew. 
Maybe they were huddled around him, trying to learn more from him, and maybe the others were more spread out. These were the four that privately asked him the question. We don't know if he just answered to these four or whether his answer spread abroad to others. But that's the sense. Here's this question came up. They said, really, when will these things be? And what will these things be? Now, there's been much debate, much inquiry into this question that they, they asked. I, I've, I've read debates. Well, did they ask him two questions? Or did they ask him three questions? In Mark and Luke, they only asked two questions. And here, it maybe looks like three questions, right? Look at the first question. When will these things be? Referring to the destruction of the temple, which Jesus brought up in verse 2 probably. When, when's the temple going to be destroyed? When are these stones going to be torn upon another? And then a second question. What will be the sign of your coming? And then the third question kind of tails on, at least some to believe it's kind of... Uh, Question 2b, if you will. Or some say it's a full-fledged question, but what will be the sign of the end of the age? And people look and try to examine that, try to understand that. There's a lot of question here about what does the end mean? What is the end of the age? And uh, people will spend much time trying to figure out the question because they think if they get the question right, everything else in the passage will flow. And I was thinking about that a little bit this week, and I thought... I'm not sure that's the case. Jesus didn't always answer questions that were asked to him. Right? Remember back in Matthew chapter 21, the chief priests and elders came and said, By what authority are you doing these things? Did Jesus say, Oh, I'll answer that question. He didn't. He turned it around to ask them a question, getting at the heart of the issue. Well, what about the baptism of John? What authority is that? Or when the Herodians came up and said, you know, is it lawful to give a poll tax or not? Jesus, give us a yes or no answer. And Jesus didn't do that. He said, give me a denarii. A denarius, right? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. Answering the question, but really with his agenda. I read a verse this week from John chapter 16, verse 25. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language. An hour is coming when I speak no more to you in figurative language, but will tell you plainly of the Father. And what that tells me is that there were times where Jesus was even a little bit unclear maybe to his disciples, speaking figuratively, sometimes plainly, sometimes not. So even I don't think the issue is what question was asked. I think the issue, what matters, is how Jesus responded to their questions. The topic has been raised about things of the end and destruction of the temple and future things. And obviously, as we read through this passage earlier in the service, it, Jesus deals with future things. But I'm not sure he exactly is going to answer the question disciples ask. But the topic is raised, and then he goes to his answer. Basically, Jesus did give signs of the end. That's the title of my message this morning, Signs of the End. And he gives us, really, six signs that we can look for. You can... Uh, Split this up differently. I, I lumped a few together. You could divide it out to maybe more, maybe eight or ten. But I've got six points in my outline today, six signs of the end. Jesus told his disciples what to expect. First thing, they ought to expect deceivers. Expect deceivers, verses four and five. See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. In other words, people are going to rise up in Jerusalem and say, I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, you, I'm the one anointed from the Father. That's not just what they say. The, the implication of that is this, that I have a direct line of communication with my Father, therefore, 
You ought to follow me and do everything that I say and will lead people astray. And Jesus said it here, even that many will be misled at the end of verse 5. Their, their attempts will be successful in misleading many. Also, I'm lumping into this point with deceivers. Verse 11, many false prophets will arise and mislead many. It's a sad fact of history that many have come and claimed that they were the Christ or they were some anointed prophet and they got a following. Jesus' disciples saw this. Josephus was a Jewish historian during the time of the early church and he told of how the city of Jerusalem was filled with many deceivers who persuaded multitudes to, of people to follow them into the wilderness. And once they were there, they would promise some kind of sign or, or wonder that they would perform to show them that they were powerful. And uh, I, I read about a few. There were many stories. But i tell you about the one I was reading. I read a lot of Josephus this week. You hear a lot of quotes from Josephus because he helps to understand what actually took place. There's one deceiver came <clears throat> out of Egypt to Jerusalem. He claimed to be a prophet. He persuaded 600 people to follow him down the Kidron Valley up to the Mount of Olives, where he would sit up there and command the walls of Jerusalem to fall down, like in the times of Joshua. Well, Felix the governor heard about these things, and he killed 400 of this man's followers. 200 he took of them into captivity. What a wonderful prophet, right? Misleading 600 people. Josephus also tells of a man named Theuda who persuaded many people to follow him out to the river Jordan. He was claiming to be a prophet and he claimed at his, own, at his word the river would be divided and they would cross the river just like in the days of Joshua and Moses. But the procurator of Judea, of Judea heard about this man's efforts and slew many of these people including Theudas himself whom they beheaded. Persuaded many. And we're not immune to this today. <clears throat> Throughout the ages, there have always been false Christs. There's always been false prophets. In recent years, David Koresh comes to my mind. He claimed that he was the Lamb of Revelation 5 because he had the discernment to discern and to unlock the seals, the seven seals of Revelation chapter 6. He had about 100 followers. And on April 19, 1993, during an FBI assault on their compound, he and 73 other Branch Davidians died. He was a false Christ, claiming that he was the Messiah. He was the Lamb. That is Jesus, the Messiah. I read this week how a Russian man named Sergei Torop, in 1992, realized his true identity as the Son of God. He calls himself the Syrian Christ and believes he's Jesus Christ. He lives in a mountain log cabin in southern Siberia. He has thousands of followers creating what they call the Last Testament Church. As far as I know, his ministry is still going on, still going strong. Thousands of people being dissuaded, following after this man. Jesus told his disciples to expect that. They saw it, we saw it. Jesus also told his disciples to expect, number two, wars. Look at verses 6 and 7. And you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. When we anticipate the end, we ought not to anticipate a time of great peace. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel both speak about the false prophet who announces peace, peace, when there is no 
peace. Jesus says, no, no, it's not like that. There's going to be conflict. There are going to be wars. This world has never known peace. Not in the times of Jesus. Not in our times. There's always been wars. There's always been rumors of wars. There's always been nation rising against nation. There's always been kingdom rising against kingdom. From cover to cover, the Bible's filled with wars. Wars in the time of Abraham. Wars in the time of Joshua. Wars in the time of the judges. Wars in the times of 1 Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. You're inundated with kingdoms against kingdoms. And wars and rumors of wars. And these disciples of Jesus' day was no different. Again, Josephus, he wrote a book. He wrote several books, but one of them was called Wars of the Jews. Just chronologuing all the different wars that the Jewish people fought. And none was greater than the culmination. He spends much of his book, Wars of the Jews, focusing upon the time when Titus came and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Many people died in that attack. There were rumors leading up to that point. And since that day, there's always been wars and conflicts in the world. From the Crusades of the Middle Ages to the war in Iraq, there's never been a time of global peace. Conflicts have been worldwide. We've had two world wars, World War I, World War II. Conflicts have been among nations, even North and South Korea fighting the, the Korean War. We've had civil wars, right even here in this nation. We've had civil wars, religious wars, trade wars, tribal wars, and we ought to expect wars to come. They took place in the Disciples' Day. They're taking place in our day. The third sign. Disaster is what I'm calling it. The end of verse 7. In various places, there'll be famines and earthquakes. In other words, disturbances from the physical realm. In the Bible, in fact, it's interesting, records the fulfillment of this. In Acts chapter 11, verse 28, a prophet named Agabus stood up. And began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a famine over all the world. And Luke comments, the end of that verse, he says, And this took place in the reign of Claudius. This is the generation of the disciples. They saw famines. Josephus described a time of famine during the, the reign of Claudius. Of how people in Jerusalem even lacked for food. And they described how a certain queen named Helena... Did a great job for the people in Jerusalem. I quote Josephus. He says this. Queen Helena sent some of her servants to Alexandria with money to buy a great quantity of corn and others of them to Cyprus to bring a cargo of dried figs. She distributed food to those that were in want and left a most excellent memorial behind her of this benefaction which she bestowed on our whole nation. Had a queen come to the rescue using money to go and buy food for many people. The queen's son, his name was Isaites, or Isaides, or Isaides. He also sent great sums of money to help with the famine as well. But famines weren't just a problem for the Jews in Jerusalem at the time. Famines have always taken place throughout the world. The Bible records a famine in Abraham's time, records a famine in Isaac's time, records a famine during the time of Jacob and Joseph. Ruth was born in Moab because her father-in-law went there due to a famine in the land. You read through 1 Kings and Chronicles, there are famines there. The history of Israel and Judah have much famine. And famines have continued throughout all of history, even up to this day. In recent years, there have been famine in Ethiopia and Kenya and Sudan, Mozambique, Zambia, Zimbabwe, just to name a few countries where famine exists today. Famines were in the time of the disciples. Famines are in our time. Earthquakes. 
They would come as well. Again, I quote Josephus. He described an earthquake in Judea. He said, there broke out a prodigious storm in the night with the utmost violence and very strong wind, with the largest showers of rain, with continued lightnings, terrible thunderings, and amazing concussions and bellowings of the earth that was in an earthquake, is what he says. Storm coming. You know, the earth moving, shaking. In fact, Josephus, a Jewish historian, not a Christian, he said that one would guess that these wonders foreshadowed some grand calamities that were coming. Earthquakes. In 109 AD, Cornelius Tacitus, a secular Latin writer, mentioned of earthquakes that took place during the reign of Nero. Nero was just before 70 AD. His, his reign was you know, in the 50s, 60s. Just before 70 AD, there were earthquakes in Laodicea. There were earthquakes in Rome. They're writing about that. And it doesn't take much research to realize earthquakes have continued to shake the globe until this day. In 526 A.D., there was an earthquake in Syria where 300,000 people were killed. 500 A.D. I read of an earthquake in 1556 that took place in the Shenxi province of China where over 830,000 people were killed. I read of an earthquake in 1755 that took lives of 60,000 people in Portugal. In the kingdom of Naples in 1857, an earthquake took more than 12,000 lives. In the 1900s, major earthquakes have been recorded in cities like San Francisco, Italy, Turkey, China, Japan, Chile, and Peru, just to name a few. This past couple months, we've seen a tsunami that's an earthquake that killed 200,000 people. As big as that disaster, that's not even bigger. I mean, there's one in China, almost a million people in 1556. Earthquakes were the time of the apostles. Earthquakes have been. And Jesus told us to expect those things. Jesus told his disciples to expect deceivers and wars, disasters, fourthly, persecutions. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And we know this happened to the very disciples that Jesus was speaking to. You know, just considering the, the four that came and asked him a question. All of those four died except for John. In fact, all the 12 apostles died with the exception of John, a violent death. Just consider James. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, James was put to death by the hand of Herod Agrippa in 44 AD. Consider Peter. Peter was put to death on a cross. Tradition says he was hung upside down. Andrew also was crucified as well in the shape of a letter X. We can go through all the apostles. All of them had verse 9 come to fulfillment for them. Jesus was telling them, you're going to experience death. They're going to kill you. And they experienced death, just as Jesus had said. And so did the early church. For 300 years, the, the church faced tremendous persecution from the Roman Empire. Faced persecution of all different types. They faced persecution from the Romans. They faced persecution from the Jews. Sometimes they were imprisoned. At times they were tortured. Some were thrown to the lions. Others were burned alive. Stories abound with persecutions that took place in the early church. And throughout the centuries, it's always happened that Christians have been persecuted. Now, certainly it's not been a steady reign of persecution for everybody, all place. But there is a measure of difficulty for everyone in the church. 
I mean, so much so that Paul categorically would say, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's always been the, the fact of being a Christian. People hate the gospel of Christ. I mean, think about um, the church, though, in these times. Interesting, the church has always flourished in times of persecution. Always flourished. Think about last century. It was Russia when the gospel spread. For 70 years, the people were oppressed under the atheism of communism. And then when the Soviet Union dismantled, we found the church was very strong. They were untaught, perhaps, having only the Bible and just clinging to that. In fact, I even heard of just some churches just even having a page of the Bible. That's all they had. They weren't well taught, but they were strong in their faith. The church flourished. The current time, it's taking place in China. Persecution today is very real in China. Christians taken away to prison, being tortured for their faith. Yet the word on the street is that the church in China is stronger than it ever has been before. I read this week of the Henan province in China. In the 1960s, it was declared an atheistic zone. An atheistic zone is what they called it. But today, communist officials complain it as a Jesus nest, suffering from Christianity fever. An amazing thing. 10% of this province now is Christian. And that's how it works. You try to squelch the church, and it's going to prosper. It's going to grow. How? Why? Well, the simple answer is that when people see that Christianity is, is real, that people are willing to suffer and even to die for their faith, then they say, hey, this is real stuff, and they consider their claims, and they continue on for that. But when it's easy to follow Christ, many willingly sign up. I mean, it's hard. They just kind of, you know, fall away. But the few who do follow are firm and make a great impact on the others. They see the sacrifice in persecuted nations that they follow. They follow that. Tertullian says the blood of the martyrs is seed. They're somehow, when, when martyrs are killed, their blood drips to the ground, and somehow God uses it to sprout Christians up. It's the way God works in this world. One man named Lactantius lived around 300 A.D. He said, God permits persecutions to be carried out against us so that the people of God may be increased. But that's what God has done. He's, persecutions have come. The apostles experienced it, and we experience it as well. Maybe not full-fledged here in America, but we experience it. If you are true for your faith, if you are standing for Christ, you'll face some persecution. Just try to make Jesus Christ an issue at your work in your neighborhood, and you'll face it. Jesus also told his disciples to expect defection. Look at verse 10. At that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. We'll skip verse 11. We looked at that earlier. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. There are many who have faced persecution over the years and have buckled under the pressure and have fallen away from the faith. It's because persecution refines the church. I'm thinking about gold, which is mined from the earth. You take that, it's filled with many impurities. The refiners put that in a big pot and they boil it, and they stir it up, and cause the gold to become liquid. And what happens to the impurities? They float to the top and rise to the top, and then they just whoop, take that away. They take it away. But it's the boiling heat of the pressure on the gold which brings out the impurities. And so also in the church, it's the boiling pressure of persecution that brings out the impurities. When persecution comes, the impure will be exposed, and they will fall away from the faith. 
Back in Matthew 13, Jesus compared the preaching of the gospel to a man sowing seed, just kind of throwing it out. He compared the, the soils to four different kinds of souls. One soul is hard. Seed can't penetrate. Another soul is shallow without much root. Grows up, has no root, falls away. Another soil, soil is crowded. Thorns and thistles come, surround it, and choke it off. Another soil is a good soil, which brings forth much good fruit. Listen to what Jesus said about the shallow soil. I think he's talking exactly what he's talking about right here. The one on whom seed was sown in the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. No firm root, only temporary. When affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. In other words, it's the persecution, it's the difficulty that drives him away. The persecution that reveals his soul is not deep and not abiding. But the good soil, on the other hand, I believe the genuine Christian, rather than just the false professor, will endure until the end. That's the point of verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. The idea here isn't that you lose your salvation if you don't endure to the end. The idea here is that those who are persecuted and remain faithful are the ones who demonstrate themselves to be authentic and have good soil. Hear this, okay? Enduring Christianity is Christianity. The Christianity that professes and does its own thing is not Christianity. When you endure, you clearly demonstrate the character of your faith. That's the message of the Bible. That's the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus describes this time of defection. He says, people will fall away. They will deliver up one another. They will hate one another. We see another thing. Lawlessness is increased. People's love growing cold. During the Roman siege of Jerusalem, Josephus went to great length to describe how bad the famine was in the city when the Romans were coming against it and they couldn't get any food. He spoke about how children took food from the mouths of their fathers. Food is so scarce that they're eating it and the children are taking it out of their mouths so they can eat it as well. But he also describes how mothers took food from their own infants. That little food that could sustain a little life, they were so desperate, so hungry that they chose for themselves rather than for their child. He told of how such actions would justly bring tears into our eyes. That is love growing cold when a mother will take food from a precious child of her own. Josephus spoke about the great fights and quarrels that would come out because of food. He spoke how the strong were able to eat, but the weak didn't get anything to eat. If a house was all locked up in Jerusalem, hey, what's that guy doing? He locked his doors. You know what that means? There's food in there. And the people of the town would rise up and they'd beat down the door and they would go into the house and Josephus says, take the food almost up out of their very throats in this by force. Kind of gives you a sense of the agony and the really kind of in some sense the selfishness and the lack of love that they had. They were all seeking just for their own. If women hid their food, their hair was torn out for doing so. And people were tortured until they revealed where they had their food. That is love growing cold. That is delivering up one another. <clears throat> I believe we've seen this in our country as well. Particularly verse 12. People's love 
growing cold. That's a result of lawlessness. Let's read that again, verse 12. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. I think our media, it constantly pushes the edge. Constantly makes available to us more and more sinful things. More and more people are drawn into that sin. They lose their love, lose their love for God, lose their love for others. As God is removed more and more and more from the public arena, as lawlessness increases, people forsake Him and they follow after their sin. You know, sad fact of history is this, that lawlessness is always increasing, it always will be increasing. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said that people are inventors of evil. We are ever increasing in our capabilities and ways in which to do evil. I think about the great inventions that made our lives easy. Plane travel all the way around the world, we can do that today in a matter of hours. We can talk to others across the world with telephones, we can communicate with email the information at our fingertips and the internet is, is boggling. These are all information, these are all inventions that have helped us. And just think, as we have progressed with all these inventions, people in their sin have also progressed in their inventions of ways in which to sin as well. Because lawlessness increased, the love of many have grown cold. Well, Jesus told us to expect it. He said, expect affection, expect deceivers, expect wars, expect disasters, expect persecution. Sixthly, here, expect evangelism. And now here's the only bright light in this text so far. It's been dreary, but the sun is coming out. It's peeking through the clouds at this point. Verse 14 is great encouragement. In this gospel, the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Jesus said that you can expect worldwide preaching to take place Far beyond just the Jewish nation. The good news of the Messiah coming into the world will spread. He called it here the message of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom is the message about a king who came to this world. His name is Jesus. He's a, a good king who will rule with gracious power and with kind laws. Unfortunately, we've not wanted him to be our king. We've placed the crown upon our heads rather than seeing the crown upon Jesus' head and worshiping Him. We've run our life our own way rather than running our life according to King Jesus and what He has said. We've established our own selves as King. We've gone our own way, choosing to fulfill our passions on our own heart rather than subjecting ourselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We've dethroned the rightful King placed ourselves as king of the world, and there will be a clash someday. Just as kingdoms rise against kingdoms, there will be a clash. King Jesus will fight all those who are king of their own lives. They will clash. The good news of the kingdom, though, is this, that today is a day of mercy. The king has announced that today he's not squashing all of his rebellious subjects. Instead, the king's offering full restoration into his kingdom. If people simply repent of their sins and cry out to God for mercy... That's the message of the gospel. It's that God is gracious and will save sinners who trust in the sacrifice of Christ to be sufficient for them. And that's the message that we preach. That is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is our king who we love and adore and desire to see exalted and high and ruling and reigning over us. And this gospel we preach to all the world. In fact, that's the very reason we sit here today is because... The words of verse 14 have become true. The word has spread to all nations. From a historical standpoint, 
We know that the gospel has spread surely, slowly but surely over the centuries. <clears throat> By 300 A.D., the gospel had so spread to the Roman Empire that it became the Holy Roman Empire. Because of the conversion of the King Constantine, it became a, a Christian empire. I use that term loosely, okay? But that's how far the gospel spread. People heard about Christ. From there it spread to Western Europe and to the reaches of Asia and down into Africa. By the time of the Reformation of the 1500s, it spread across all that continent. Then with the discovery of the New World, the gospel went forth to North America and South America. It's reached Australia too. It's been preached in all the continents of the world. Certainly there are more people need to be reached with the gospel. Wycliffe Bible translators did a great job in translating the Bibles in other languages and it gives us a good picture of <coughs> just the spread of the gospel and where it's gone. With Bible translations comes the preaching of the gospel in those languages. In 1800, the Bible is translated into 40 different languages. 40. Parts, portions of the scripture were translated into another 26. 66 languages in the 1800s. And I read that William Carey by himself translated some of the scriptures into 45 different Indian dialects. And it shows you one man how much work he did to kind of spread that thing. He was around that time. By 1900, the entire Bible had been translated into 200 languages. Portions of the scripture had been translated into 500 more. By 2000, the entire Bible had been translated into 350 languages. The New Testament translated into more than 1,000. And there are more than 2,000 languages that have a portion of scripture translated. There still is work to go. I was on Wycliffe's website yesterday. And uh, they project maybe by 2025, making a huge dent in all this Bible translation. But it's still, it's a big job. But that's being accomplished. Verse 14 is being fulfilled even in our day. The gospel going out through all the whole world. In this we greatly delight. When Jesus died upon the cross, he purchased for God with his blood men from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And there will be a day when his people from the distant tribes hear his voice for the first time, receive the gospel and gathered into his kingdom. We hear the signs that Jesus has given us. He told his disciples to expect deceivers, wars, disasters, persecution, defection, and evangelism. I spent my whole message to this point talking about what will be your signs. Verse 3, what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? But I haven't spent much time on the when. The what is easy, but the when is difficult. But maybe you noticed something about all of these things that I did this week. There's nothing special about any of these things. Is there? I mean, I've heard this passage preached before in the past. I've always heard it in such a way that would lead us to believe that none of these things have been fulfilled, none of these things have come to pass, but we're all waiting for them to come in the future. And preachers have often described, you know, trying to make this escalating and making this be a huge deal, you know, like deceivers on every corner, wars which will make the world wars seem small, and earthquakes and famines happening in every nation, and massive persecution of all believers all around the planet, almost everyone falling away from their faith. As soon as we get that gospel, that one last reached people group, then Jesus will come. But it's getting worse and worse. You ever heard that? Heard that message before? How many of you heard that? Raise your hand. That's predominantly how these passages, passages dealt with. But as I studied this week, I was amazed. Jesus is describing life as it's like on this earth. And certainly, there is an element of escalation of these events, right? Especially talking about many falling away. 
talk about most people's love growing cold. Seemingly it's affecting the majority of the people. There's also even verse 8 talks about how this is merely the beginning of birth pangs. It's just the beginning. It's going to get worse. And in fact, we will see next week just even some things that it speaks about how bad it will be. Verse 21, there'll be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor shall ever be. Talking about some escalation of things, but in our text this morning, I don't see a great escalation of things. I see Jesus describing life like it is. There's now and there's always been deceivers, wars, disasters, persecutions, defections, and evangelism. He's not describing some distant future world. He's describing our gloomy world as it is today. That's how we ought to look at the world. That's how it was in Jesus' day. That's how it continues to be today. And in every single one of these signs I went through, I explained very carefully. It happened in the time of the disciples, and it's happening today. And it's not every case that it's always escalating. I mean, the earthquakes. I mean, far more died of earthquakes in 500 and 1500 than died today in the tsunami. It's not always just escalating. But the disciples experience these things. People throughout all of history experience these things. We experience these things. Maybe the exception was just this last one, right? The gospel of the kingdom being preached to the whole world. But you know, the great apostle Paul, I think, thought this was fulfilled in his day. Listen carefully what he said in Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. Okay, listen to this. Jesus said the gospel would be preached in the whole world. Listen to what Paul says. Colossians chapter 1, verse 6. The gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it's constantly bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel that came to the Colossians came to all the world, he said. He said in Colossians 1, verse 23, that the gospel was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. From Paul's perspective, he thought the gospel was preached to the whole world. Certainly didn't go to every person living, but his words seemed to indicate the far-reaching effects that it had even in the Apostle Paul's time. So if you ask Paul, do you think that these things all happened in your day? What do you think Paul would have said? I think Paul would have said, you know, I think they have. Ought we to think that these things are happening in our day? I think so. This is life as he has described it. Peter, Jesus doesn't paint a glamorous picture of life. One that will be full of happy and, and joy and color. He paints one that's drizzly and filled with sorrow and difficulty and hardship and trial. Jesus said things are going to be dark and gloomy. What's going to be your sign, Jesus? Well, it's going to be dark and gloomy in this world. I think perhaps this is a, a great argument against a post-millennialist who might believe that Jesus is going to usher in this great kingdom. It's going to be grand and glorious. Jesus said, no, no, no. It's going to be gloomy and difficult all the time. Job 14.1 says, life is few of days and full of trouble. And that's his message here. What's the sign of your coming? Well, it's going to be few days full of trouble is what your life is going to be like. And that's a sign of his coming at the end of the age. Well, at this point, you might be asking yourself, well, so what? Steve, you've filled your sermon so far with all these signs filled with sorrows of life. What am, what am I supposed to do? And I just say, as much as I have filled my message this morning, I think uncharacteristically, the cold history lesson, when I write up my sermon this Tuesday, the number of footnotes that I'm going to have, I, I guess is going to number 10 to 15, something like that. Just the number of historical references here. But as much as it's cold history, Jesus was very pastoral in his words. 
And we need to recognize that. Intermixed among these signs were helpful instructions for living. I just want to look at a few of those by way of application as we close this morning. First, Jesus said, don't be misled. That would be my advice to you. Don't be misled. He said in verses 4 and 5, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. Next week, we'll see that even more. I'll expand upon that more, like in verse 23. Someone says, Behold, here's the Christ, or there he is. Don't believe him. Verse 24, False Christs and false prophets will arise. I'll deal with that more next week. But Jesus says, Don't be misled. And I think we ought to take that application. Don't be misled into eschatological, fanciful thinking. We take these all things and just say, it's got to be this huge thing. You know what? This is just like it is now. And the way not to be misled is to know the correct way. The way not to be misled is to know Christ and follow him. It's to know what our Bible says about Jesus. We need to know what our Bible says about his return. How many today are easily deceived by someone's prophetical preacher just talking about the end things this is what it's going to be like they go oh, okay but read your bibles see if you can figure it out see if you can find it for yourself don't trust my words lest i become just another false prophet leading you astray the first step of going astray is to trust someone's words read the words of jesus they're in your lap pray for understanding you say god jesus when will these things be is is what's happening Consistent with this, have these things always happened? Is there anything special that still needs to take place? Don't be misled. Second, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. That comes in verse 6. Jesus said, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened. For these things must take place. But that is not yet the end. In other words, Jesus is instructing his disciples to have a calm resolve. When they see their nation in turmoil, when they live in uncertain times, when there's political unrest, the disciples of Jesus are to remain firm, undisturbed by the tensions around them. How? How can you do that? How can you be firm when the world is in an upheaval? Resting and relying upon the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. When these things happen, it's not as if God is out of control. It's all in control. Look, that's exactly what it says here. These things must take place. It must take place because God is in control. And though the wars are erupting and though there's turmoil and I don't know where I'm going to get my next food, though all these things are happening, I'm going to remain calm and secure. I'm not going to be frightened. See, an understanding of prophecy ought not to frighten us. Understanding a prophecy ought to comfort us as we see his plan unfold before our eyes. And unfortunately, many times there are those who are studying prophecy are doing so out of paranoia and fear of the future. Often those who teach prophecy know full well how to take advantage of people's fears. If people are afraid of something, they'll come and hear. And the best way to stir a big crowd and a big following is to instill fear in people, and then they'll come. And so the prophecy teachers oftentimes know this. And the better and the bigger and the more sensational the presentation is, the more fear be stilled in the people, and the greater will be the following. But that's exactly opposite of what Jesus says. He says, when these things happen, be calm. Don't be frightened. Be comfort the fact that God is in control and all these things are happening according to his sovereign purpose. Finally, third application. Live with endurance. 
Live with endurance. I get this in verses 12 and 13. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he should be saved. Jesus warned that there will be a time when people's love will grow cold. I presume this simply means love towards God and love towards others. Just going to temper off. Where once it used to be burning, as John wrote, I think it was Revelation chapter 2, you've left your first love. I think this is what's happening here. Leaving your first love, leaving your love of, of God and love of others. It's growing cold amidst the difficulties that come. And I just say, don't let this happen to you. In Matthew 22, Jesus said that the command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, is the great and foremost commandment. He followed that up with a second, which is like it, love your neighbors yourself. If love is the greatest commandment of all the commandments, the one you ought to pay most attention to is the command to love, lest we fail in obeying it. You don't want to be told your love's growing cold. And so I exhort you, church family, to love others. I exhort you, church family, to endure in that love. Don't be like the majority who grow cold. Be like the minority who will continue on. Be the one who has enduring faith, right? Verse 13, the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And do you know how to do that? It's not to grit your teeth and say, okay, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. It's realizing that we are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. God, that's the thing. Take my heart, the Lord, and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. You see what the hymn is saying? Lord, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to fall away. But God, I'm praying to you that you would take my heart and seal it and secure it for the throne above. In Jude, at the end of Jude, it says, keep yourselves in the love of God. But do you know how you keep yourself in the love of God? Not to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence. Be all glory and praise to him. It's God who's able to keep us in that love. And so the way to stay in that love is to pray to him and trust continually, continually cry for the grace of God to give you the strength to endure. It doesn't come easily, but it comes to those who continually cry to him day and night. And may that be Rock Valley Bible Church. I think that's the clear lesson when Jesus was asked here about eschatology, prophecy. He said, don't be misled. All these fanciful things going on. Don't be misled. Don't be frightened. This is just the beginning. It's going to be bad. But don't be frightened. Be calm. And live with endurance. We're not in a sprint. We're in a marathon. And let's press on with just a continual, enduring Christianity, continuous faith. Next week, we'll begin to look at what this abomination of desolations is. And we'll continue on our exposition of Matthew 24. But let's pray now. Lord, I would pray that as Jesus was pastoral in his speaking of the Olivet Discourse, that my heart would be pastoral as well. Is that we as a church wouldn't be so interested in all the future things that we miss the comfort that's there. We miss the, the security that's there in Christ. That we miss the eagerness how we ought to pursue, how we ought to be diligent about doing the master's business. I pray, Lord, for Rock Valley Bible Church that you would protect our hearts, that our love might not grow cold. If there are people here whose love's beginning to grow cold, Lord, I pray that you would stir it again afresh. 
kindle it again anew. He's saying, Redeemer, renew my heart again. May that be true of our hearts. May that be true of our souls, Lord, that you are renewing us again and again. I pray again, Lord, for your guidance in future weeks to come as we go through this passage. And we face even more difficult passages than this one. I pray that you would guide us into all truth, that we would know and understand, Lord, the things about to take place, the sign of the coming of the end, the sign of the coming of the Messiah. And I pray in all this that you would stir in us an eager anticipation and longing for the return of Christ. May that be our heart's cry. May we long to see him come again. In Christ's wonderful name that we pray. Amen.